Welcome to Just Go Grind, a show all about building and investing in companies, featuring interviews with startup founders, investors, and operators, sharing the best insights into the world of entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Justin Gordon. In this episode, we have Hadley Harris, co-founder and general partner at ENIAC Ventures. ENIAC started as a $1.6 million fund back in 2010 and recently raised a $125 million fifth fund. And in this episode, we talk about Hadley's experience investing in companies for more than a decade, why he started ENIAC in the first place with three of his friends, what their deal process looks like, it's a bit unique, how they find deal flow, what founders need to know about raising a seed round, a little bit about portfolio construction, and much more in this episode. As always, these show notes are at justgogrind.com slash podcast, and you can support the show by leaving a rating and review over in Apple Podcasts. Without further ado, here is Hadley Harris, co-founder and general partner of ENIAC Ventures. Hadley, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Justin. Yeah, I appreciate you taking the time to come on and a lot to discuss with your experience at ENIAC and over the last decade of, of running this fund with your, with your co-founders. For people who aren't familiar with, with the fund, with the firm though, what areas are you investing in now? Yeah, so we focus on seed stage, uh, generally leading seed rounds. We're relatively broad within that. So we, we have kind of four areas which are pretty broad, SaaS, developer, uh, consumer and deep tech. Uh, we're all engineers uh, by uh, by education and, and have worked as developers. So we're, we're probably a little more technical than the average VC. So we tend to gravitate towards technically driven businesses. Uh, we probably invest in more technical teams than most. Uh, but, you know, as the nature of, of seed, you need to be opportunistic when a great founding team comes along that maybe doesn't fit kind of into a particular thesis. You know, I've learned... Uh, through both uh, through trial and error that, that you need to jump on that and, and work with great people. So uh, relatively broad in terms of the types of companies we invest in. And to that as well, so you and your co-founders, are all operators, like former founders as, as well. Why did you decide to start ENIAC? You know, it's interesting. I, so I went to undergrad with my partners. We all were engineering students at Penn way back in the late 90s. Um, and, uh, you know, spent a long time, as you said, working uh, first as developers and then entrepreneurs. Uh, started and helped grow uh, 10 venture-backed businesses between the four of us, all, all independently. But we stayed friends during that time. Um, and then, you know, kind of 2008, 2009, we were thinking about what we're going to do next. We're still running our own businesses. And we were really interested in, in working with uh, founders at the earliest stages. So we, we cobbled together our first fund, mostly our own savings and some, some college friends. Uh, <laughs> it was really small, 1.6 million. It was almost it's amazing. Uh, TechCrunch actually covered it, which I still think is hilarious. That they covered a, a $1.6 million fund. Um, yep. well, yeah, launched that in 2010. But, you know, we, we treated it as a real fund. We did actually 32 investments out of that fund. So as you can imagine, it was small. You know, it was like 25 or 50K checks. Uh, interestingly, you know, the debates we had over a 25K check uh, back then, you know, you know, mirrored the ones we do now for, you know, a million and a half. Uh, yep. But, you know, it was great. We kind of, it was kind of an MVP. You know, we want to see, do we want to work together? You know, do we want to be investors? And the answer to both those things was yes. And we were fortunate that founders seemed to really enjoy working with us. So we, we, we went from there and have kind of grown ever since. What was it about those early days with, with that first fund? Obviously, a small fund with smaller checks. But what was it about that that made you continue on? What did you enjoy about that process that made you obviously raise subsequent funds later on? Yeah, I think there are two major things. One was getting to work with, 
you know, close friends of mine, you know, folks that I, you know, enjoy spending time with that, that have kind of similar interests. So that was part of it. And then the second one was just getting to work with awesome founders. You know, VC is kind of the, the best gig or, you know, I'm, I'm obviously biased, but, you know, I get to meet <laughs> incredible founders all day long. So, uh, you know, they're doing really cool stuff and, and learn about their vision. And then, you know, where there's a mutual fit and to work with them really closely from the very earliest stages. You know, we, we've had, I think, seven companies that have eventually become, um, uh, you know, at least billion dollar companies. So kind of getting to go through that ride with them through the, from the earlier state, earlier stages through product market fit and then into growth is just, it's just fascinating. It's really inspiring to get to work with folks that are, uh, you know, creating companies that, that can be kind of large standalone businesses. So yeah, it's just, there's not, there's not much not to like in, in my mind. <laughs> Yeah, I remember interviewing Rick Smith from Crosscut Ventures, and he was mentioning, yeah, VC is the best job in the world. And uh, as I've gotten into this in the last number of months and seeing how this works from being inside a firm, it's it's fascinating. It, there's obviously some things that are not as fun, but for the most part, being a work with entrepreneurs and people you enjoy working with is uh, a ton of fun and a lot, very fulfilling for that as well and kind of always challenging you. With ENIAC Ventures, as you've gone on from that first smaller fund, how have you looked at deal flow approaching getting access to the best companies as time has gone on? Yeah. I mean, our deal flow has really increased over the years. We're, we're now on our fifth fund. We just started investing out of, which is $125 million. And, you know, it, it's kind of consistently grown over time. We're looking at hundreds of companies per month now. That certainly wasn't true in the earlier days. You know, we tend to do two or three investments per year per partner, which is pretty concentrated for a seed fund. So, you know, call it 10 to 12 um, across the firm. So, you know, we're having to go from a top of funnel of, of hundreds down to one a month, which is really challenging. In terms of what, what's driving that, um, you know, it tends to come from a few areas. We, we've all been in tech our whole career. So we have our own networks that we kind of brought to the table. Um, we certainly have a lot of co-investors we share opportunities with. Uh, you know, there's this kind of uh, pretty substantial pre-seed ecosystem, and, and we're more commonly investing more kind of core seed, call it kind of two to four million dollar rounds, leading those rounds. So uh, we get to work closely with a lot of angels and pre-seed uh, firms that, you know, those companies often graduate to more of a, a core seed. So we, we get a lot of opportunities from them or other seed funds that are similar size. You know, we, we tend to look to invest about half the round or, or less, uh, and we capped our fund. To, to make sure that was true so we could always be collaborative. So we get a lot of opportunities from, from those kind of similar funds or even larger funds that maybe it's a little too early for, for them. Um, and then probably the, the kind of uh, the most interesting thing that kind of pops up over time it, once you've been in the business, I guess, for, for, for 11 years is we have this portfolio that we've invested over time. So we get a lot of stuff from our portfolio founders and, and, uh, and teams. Um, We've invested, I think, now five uh, founding teams for the second time. Uh, so they, they built a, a company kind of in the early days, you know, had some level of success and then came back. Uh, and we were really fortunate that they came back to us when they started something new. And we, and we have some really exciting companies that have gone through that. So so that kind of uh, history of, of having founders that we've worked with that, you know, seem to like working with us, which is, which is <laughs> awesome. That means we've done our job. You know, I think that's one of the unfair advantages of, of being in the business. Uh, for a little bit longer, especially in seed, because, you know, when we started investing in seed, it, it was very early. You know, there are a few other firms that are still in seed, like first round and floodgate, but but not many. Yep. You know, it, it wasn't really a ecosystem that, that we know today. 
with that as well, you mentioned you know investing in maybe two or three companies per GP per year, uh, and I know you mentioned I think it was on the website somewhere around this being an important part of your strategy, allowing you to have the bandwidth to be true partners with the founders you work with. Was that always the idea, always the strategy that you guys were going to use at Eniac? Yeah, we we were a little less concentrated in the in the first two funds. Um, I think we did kind of, but still relatively concentrated. I think we did like around fifteen a year, and then the last three funds more like ten. And the, the shift there was uh, we went from following to leading. We were just really small. Our first two funds, our, our second fund was $13 million. So not, not the size that, uh, that would either necessitate or make sense to be a, a lead investor. And I think as a, as a follower investor, you, can, you have a little bit more bandwidth. You're not kind of the investor of record. Uh, since we've been leading, we've had that more concentrated size. And, um, you know, there are a lot of funds out there, and there's different ways to be successful who do, you know, two, three, four times as many investments per year. And that, and that's fine. I, I just don't think, uh, I think it's a different kind of investing. You know, if you want to be able to spend the time to be that kind of primary, um, you know, investor to your to your founding teams, uh, I think you need to keep it pretty concentrated. Otherwise, you're just never going to have the bandwidth required to, you know, do that, find new investments and, and run the firm. Yeah. And it's also one of those things where you look at the strategy of small teams versus some of these bigger venture firms who have a, a huge support staff on the platform side of things. And those are two kind of very different strategies in many ways to have that much support versus uh, keeping the team relatively small, have working with the partners directly, just a different strategy. I don't know if uh, something that you have thought doing more of the platform side, I know you're hiring a couple of roles I saw from your announcement of your latest fund. How are you thinking about the platform side of things? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And, you know, um, Actually, I, I, I did a, um, I, having kind of had a lot of mentors over the day, over the years, um, you know, there are different uh, ways to be successful. And I, I don't think that one way is necessarily better than others. We've decided to align ourselves as much more of a GP led organization. So we want uh, our partners to be kind of that first and last uh, touch point for founders. Uh, there are a lot of firms that have kind of hired a lot of uh, investment professionals that are often kind of doing a lot of those touch points. There are firms that have hired very big platform teams, and and that's fine. And you know, there's, you know, there's, there's ways that you can add value through that. We've we've decided to be much more of a GP led. You know, as you mentioned, we all have operating and and a founding background. So I think we have a lot to offer. You know, we we, we have a lot of scar <laughs> tissue. We've made a lot of mistakes. We've yep. we've had failures, and and hopefully learned from that. So I think that aligns well for us for the way we want to run the firm. Um, we, uh, you know, we, we do think, do some kind of platform like things that built out like a very strong network, uh, that can be used for both, uh, you know, sales and business development. There's also expert network that can help our companies. Um, but it's not kind of our primary, um, way that we help companies. The, the primary is really, and, and those folks are kind of brought to the table through us as GPs versus kind of a large platform team that steps in and, you know, helps you run your, your marketing or your uh, your recruiting or, or stuff like that. Um, so yeah, that, that, that that's our approach. Yeah, that makes total sense. And with ENIAC as well, I know one thing I saw around the deal process and how that's a little bit unique with ENIAC. Can you walk us through what that looks like? Yeah, and, and this has evolved a lot over the years. Uh, I think one thing we do a little differently because we have four founding partners, we we haven't come in kind of at different times like like you would with you know, most uh, traditional VC funds that have been around for, for 30 years, you know, we're all equal partners. We don't have an attribution between us. Um, and for that reason, I, I think we tend to be more team oriented. So we uh, each individually meet with uh, founding teams before we do a deal. 
you know, if something's moving super fast, we could certainly kind of double up or do more of a classic partner pitch. But one thing we found as as founders is that the classic partner pitch where you kind of come in and the whole team, you know, you pitch the whole team and, you know, around a boardroom or, or you know, in these days on, on Slack or sorry, on Zoom, it's just, yep. you know, not that efficient. You, you know, a lot of times, a lot of folks around the table aren't really up to speed. You know, you got you got one guy on his phone not really paying attention. I, I could go into some bad stories I had going up and down Stample Road back in the day. We'd rather have kind of a much deeper conversation between the founders and us. And, and we try and make that efficient, you know, w- without kind of utilizing too much of their time. But that allows them to get to know each of us so that once we do make the investment, they can go to any of us for help. And they know that Nahal is incredible on kind of network uh, and sales and go to market. And Vic's really strong on products. So they, they get to know kind of what to expect of each of us. And they have that direct relationship. You've probably found, and I see this kind of when our companies graduate to Series A, they generally don't really know any of the other partners. Like maybe they were in the same room for that final pitch. So the idea that they would kind of go directly to them for help is kind of just something that doesn't happen. So we, we try and create much more of a, a group atmosphere that frankly we couldn't do, you know, if we were Sequoia and kind of people are coming and going from the firm over time. And, and there's kind of hierarchy in terms of uh, how long they've been with the firm or kind of how, how well they had done over time. Yeah. And one, one thing I want to talk about with what you've all done at ENIAC is portfolio construction. I know you wrote about this and had a, a pretty in-depth article, but for people who haven't seen it and who want to hear a little bit more, how do you think about portfolio construction today at ENIAC? Yeah, this is something I talk about. I'm like one of the few people I think that is passionate about portfolio construction. So it's like, uh, I, I don't know, not, not that I'm a genius, but probably the only one that like cares to spend a lot of time on it. So we put a lot of emphasis on it. Um, and yeah, we, we've kind of open sourced our, our portfolio construction model and, and wrote a blog post. And I think we're going to update that with some of our learnings in the last year. You know, portfolio construction at seed is different than than Series A and growth stage. Um, you know, you're getting in earlier. The whole times for the uh, investments are longer. Um, you also need to have more companies in the portfolio. So, you know, if you think about the classic Series A, not not the kind of multi-billion dollar uh, funds being raised now, but the classic Series A, they tended to have kind of around 25 uh, companies in, uh, you know, in, in each portfolio. And if you kind of do the math on the natural attrition from a Series A through an IPO or, or like late stage acquisition or getting to kind of some sort of uh, liquidity, it makes sense. You know, you have a conversion rate from Series A to B to C and, and beyond. Uh, what I think mistake a lot of seed funds make is they kind of try and build their portfolio in a similar way where they just have too, too few portfolio companies. So you have this natural attrition. We're lucky that our conversion rate from C to A is has been really strong and gone up over the years and quite a bit above average, but just take for kind of a, a like a pretty strong conversion rate, 50%. In that scenario, you really need to have 50 companies in your seed stage portfolio, or, or if it's 75, you can get, you know, 35, 30, 38 portfolio companies in your seed stage portfolio. Uh, otherwise, you're just going to not have enough shots on goal. So yeah. the way that we, you know, as I said earlier, we're pretty concentrated, you know, we're only doing... 10, 12 investments per year. So the way that we kind of square that circle is that we do our uh, initial investment period quite a bit longer than most. So we're running kind of three to three and a half years on the initial investment period. And that kind of allows us to be both concentrated where we're not doing too many investments a year and we have the bandwidth and we can keep the bar really high, but we have enough shots on goal in the, um, in the overall, in each fund. 
Um, and then the one other thing I'd add that I think uh, most folks don't do is that you need to kind of tweak that model over time and constantly be iterating. So for example, if you have kind of a certain, you say you start off your fund, you're going to set to have like 40 portfolio companies and say your conversion rate's really high. You're getting 90%. This is kind of unheard of, but say just for example, <laughs> you're getting 90% of your seed stage uh, companies raising series A. And again, they're converting to the B. You actually need less companies in your portfolio because uh, you're getting more companies kind of to those later stages. And on the flip side, you need more money to keep following on in, in those companies if you want to hold your pro rata, especially through the series A. So while you may have kind of those numbers at the beginning, we're going to do X number of investments over X, X uh, y, y time period, you need to be iterating. And, uh, and often that's kind of based on the conversion rate you have between your crowd. One of those things I'm curious about too is how do you look at ownership targets or how has that changed as you've gone along with obviously a much larger fund now at the 125 million, you had a hundred million dollar fund before, but you went from, you know, 1.6 to like a 55 million dollar <laughs> fund earlier. It's a lot different. How do you look at that now? Yeah. So this is also something we've, we've learned kind of the hard way. So if you look at our early funds, the ownerships were kind of all over the place. You know, <laughs> we had some ownerships, you know, that were twice or three times as, as large as others. And one thing we've kind of learned that, you know, you, you hear in the, in like many things, you hear people kind of give you advice, but until you actually live through it, it's like hard to internalize it. So yeah. we tend to, um, all of our investments tend to be kind of 10 to 15% ownership. We, we almost never do an investment and we are leading these rounds. So that, that, that's why it's doable under 10%. And we find that that's super important in terms of, having every company be able to return the whole fund. And the general math there is that if we're 10% ownership, we kind of maintain that through into the growth round, you know, that there might be some dilution after that. A company can get to like a billion, billion and a half dollar outcome and return our whole fund. Uh, where you don't want to be with a fund like ours is say 3% or 2%. Then you need these kind of five to $10 billion outcomes. Now, traditionally those are, are, much more rare. Like we're living in crazy times now. We're all yeah. you know, seeing all these decacorns. So, you know, that has caused us to kind of rethink and be a little bit more flexible. But if you look at uh, venture funds, and this is, I think, true across at least all the early stage uh, venture, a really good fund always has at least one fund returner. And, and it really does follow the power law. So this idea that you can kind of double or triple your way to great returns, which which we thought we could do in the early days, is just not true. You, you need those outside outcomes. And to have those outcomes, you need to own enough of the company. Um, we've had some great companies that, uh, you know, we're really proud to be involved with, but just our ownership was really low and they just don't have a huge impact. You know, they can they can become really successful companies and, and return half the fund, which is great. I'm not certainly not complaining about that, but that's not the kind of outcome you need to have kind of great returns. Yeah, and to that point as well. So I think I read as well that your $125 million fund, your latest one, that was kind of, you were going to be capped at that. You didn't want to go any higher. Is this the kind of max size you think for a seed fund? Because I talked, again, going back to, I think, of Rick Smith and their fund size. I think they said a very similar $125 million was kind of their max as well. What do you think about that in terms of a seed fund? Yeah, we believe that at least for our strategy uh, and that, you know, as we talked about, uh, has to do with a bit with our portfolio construction and being a, a bit more concentrated. For our strategy, uh, 125 was the most we could invest. So that was both our target and our hard cap when, when we went out. Um, 
another kind of part of our strategy I, I kind of alluded to before is we never want to have to be over half the round. So we're generally leading or co-leading, either splitting around with another kind of similar size fund or a lot of uh, bringing a bunch of angels or smaller funds that can add value. Uh, once you start taking more than half the round, you get into a different scenario where you just can't be collaborative. So the combination of our portfolio construction, never wanting to have to be over half the round, uh, kind of dictated our fund size. Uh, and, and that's where the 125 comes. You know, in the future, we could be larger if one, we change strategies, which I don't necessarily see us doing. Or the other thing is the seed funds can continue to get larger over time. You know, when we started to invest, a lot of the seed funds were under a million bucks. Now, you know, average for us tends to be probably around $3 million. So as the IFC continues to grow in terms of the average uh, round size, we could potentially grow with that, but we'd want to kind of stay within those confines. Yeah. And one of the things I want to dive into, because it's a similar vein here of obviously working with with founders and actually doing these deals, you're going to see a lot of different companies as you're a VC. And you mentioned the hundreds and hundreds you see, but you're only investing a small amount. For you, how do you tell founders no? And what does it look like for you? Yeah, it, it is the worst part of the job. And, uh, you know, I, I, I don't like doing it, but I, but I think it's super important. And being totally transparent to founders is really important. Um, uh, so there's kind of a couple options here. One is preferably you can really kind of take the time and give a thoughtful pass. And I try and do this as, as much as possible. I think the vast majority of the times I pass, I give the, the reasons why we're not passing, um, you know, uh, some visibility into our process if possible. You know, sometimes it's a it's an interesting opportunity, but we have a couple others that just are just smack on a thesis we have. And, and thus, you know, we need to spend our time kind of on the opportunities we think are, are best fit for us. It doesn't mean that, that it's a bad company. So anyways, trying to be as thoughtful and transparent as possible because founders will take uh, you know, for the most part, take that, that feedback and they're going to act on that. What I, what I don't do and, and the, what I don't do and what I think a lot of uh, investors do that I, I really frown upon is kind of throwing out some bullshit. Like, for example, um, you don't like the team, but then you blame it on the market or something like that. Because <laughs> now you're just giving them kind of false data to act upon. So yeah. if you if you're not going to be transparent, if for some reason, say it is the team and you don't want to be transparent, which, you know, can be understandable. That can be a hard kind of feedback to get. Just don't give any reason. Just say, you know, we've decided to go uh, work on other investments or we've decided, you know, as a team, this just wasn't a fit. Just give them nothing because nothing is better than the kind of bullshit, which, which unfortunately I think happens way too much. Why do you think it does happen so much? I think just late, uh, laziness slash, you know, I, I definitely, you know, as I said, <laughs> is the best job in the world, so I never want to like try and like be like, oh, we're, we have this tough life. But, you know, we do look at a lot of investments, you know, we do kind of suffer from inbox, you know, uh, just, uh, just keeping up with their inbox. Uh, and then, you know, some, some VCs are lazy. So I think they're just not taking the time and it's much easier path to just kind of throw something out. that's either not well thought out or, or even worse, not true. Um, and the kind of more I do it, the more I try and make sure I, I never do that and try and preach as much as possible. Uh, subtweeting people, you know that that, that other investors shouldn't do that. I, I think it's bad for the for the entrepreneurial community. Yeah, and it's also if you think about it, like a, a long term play, because if you're going to be in this business and have a brand built around your fund and raising subsequent funds, 
if you have founders that continually just speak bad about you as an investor, it's never going to be good for you as you move forward. So it is something that's even like, I'm just getting into it now and like having to say no to a couple people uh, is challenging, but important nonetheless, and to give a reason and then be honest and transparent whenever possible. Another thing too, with dealing with entrepreneurs and um, you mentioned leading a lot of rounds, co-leading a lot of rounds as well. What have you learned about negotiation over your you know decade of being in venture because that's a big part of it as well yeah um probably you know you, you learn from your failures uh, when i when i think about some of the companies i missed out on um one one thing that stood out that i really uh, have learned to kind of avoid is just try and be really fair with your first offer don't don't try and kind of lowball um because you can really miss out you know uh Valuing an early stage startup is, is very qualitative, but you know, when you, when you do investments kind of every day and that's what you do for your living, you get a pretty good feel for what the, the value should be. Now, of course, we're in kind of crazy times. So, you know, valuations have been really high and it, it kind of takes a little getting used to, but generally you have kind of a feel for the market dynamics of, of what a, a startup should be, be valued at. Um, so really try and kind of come in with a initial offer that, that's fair, not trying to kind of low ball to get into some big, you know, back and forth uh, negotiation that will take time and give uh, time for other uh, investors to come in and maybe kind of give them a better offer. Um, that, that's one thing I've learned. Another thing is to try and be open along the way during the process around what you're thinking about. You don't necessarily have to throw out an exact valuation, but at least kind of get some guardrails out there and kind of get a feel from the founders of what they're thinking about, how much they want to raise, how they're thinking about dilution. And that way, when it does come to time that it seems like there's a mutual fit and you want to give them a term sheet, you're kind of in the same ballpark. It's not a huge, you should never come with like a huge surprise or like, holy shit, like I thought it was going to be twice as high, you know? So I think kind of being more open and collaborative around what terms will look like, even when you're not quite to conviction yet and you haven't convinced them that you're the right partner, but you're kind of working through that, I, I think is really helpful. Yeah. And one of the things too I wanted to dive into is a couple of your investments, one being Anchor. So I had interviewed um, someone previously, Marlon Nichols, who we talked about Gimlet and his invested in Gimlet Media. And it was kind of fascinating to hear about that. With Anchor, how did you first hear about Anchor? Yeah. So I met uh, Mike and Nir uh, through a, a co-investor we work with a lot in New York, Betaworks, uh, Matt Hartman. One of my, uh, you know, kind of seminal experiences as, as an operator was uh, uh, being the first employee and kind of uh, pretty involved with building a company called uh, Vlingo that was the first audio-based virtual assistant, very similar to how uh, Siri is now, and, and a lot of our technology has kind of been pulled into Siri over time. So uh, audio has always been a passion. I, I feel like it's, you know, it's funny that we're doing a podcast right now, and yet <laughs> I just came from a clubhouse. So like, clearly this has yeah. kind of become mainstream, but the audio has been a passion of mine for 15 years. It's something I've felt a long time was underserved and had a very specific thesis at the time that um, in terms of media, if you look uh, kind of when we made the, the anchor investment, I think it was probably around 2014 or 15, you know, you obviously had these large networks built around video, around photos, around text, uh, but you had nothing that was audio only, only audio first. And there's a lot of use cases uh, for that, whether you're driving or you're working or you, you don't want to kind of have to kind of look at something, but you're, you have something in the background where audio just makes a ton of sense. So that had a thesis, there should be a uh, media network kind of built around that. 
uh, met met Mike and Nier. They they had worked together at Aviary, leading product and engineering respectively. That's like kind of a classic ENIAC team, like you know, technical, product oriented. Had a yeah. very kind of strong view of how the world should look, and really just just loved it. So we ended up uh, co-leading their round. Um, and you know, the company evolved in the earlier days. Uh, I think one of the the early insights uh, that Mike and Nier had was that. Podcasts, which weren't, were just starting to kind of gain steam, was uh, kind of a, a, an interesting platform for this to exist upon. Instead of building their their own, um, you know, proprietary p- platform, make it really easy for p- people to create podcasts, which already had kind of broad consumption, uh, whether through Apple or, or Google, or at the time not too much on Spotify. So by kind of combining their vision uh, with this kind of existing protocol that they could they could kind of build on top of. Uh, they quickly became, you know, the number one podcast creation platform. I think at the time Spotify acquired us, we were at about a third of all podcasts. I think it's over 50% now um, in terms of the number of podcasts uh, that are created on Anchor. So yeah, it was just an awesome ride getting to work with them on that and kind of see their their vision come to fruition. With something like that, when you're looking at companies, I mean, how many of these are? You know, based on your thesis and what you're seeing as as markets evolve, and you want to back a company in that space versus, you know, co investors coming to you or other partners coming to you or your current, you know, past founders coming to you with with opportunities. What's that mix look like for you, Hadley? Yeah, that that's a great question. It, it's broadly it's like fifty fifty. So um, what I described with Anchor was a thesis bet. So already had the thesis, uh, met Mike and Nier, and they fit into that thesis, and then just love them as founders. Uh, the other kind of extreme is very much an opportunistic bet. So another company we led the seed in uh, here in New York, Attentive, you know, had worked with the founders before uh, Brian and AJ came to us with uh, something they were working on in marketing tech. Uh, I and my partners were not spending time in marketing tech. You know, when they even gave us, told us about the idea, wasn't you know particularly that interesting i think we were a little skeptical and it's evolved a little bit you know evolved in those early days but we just knew these guys crushed you know we had worked yeah. with them uh, i was on their board at tap commerce which had sold after series a for 100 million so not a huge outcome but i'd clearly kind of seen them execute and they sold at the right time based on what they were doing at tap commerce and you know sometimes especially as a seed investor you can't try and kind of get you know, think you're too smart and kind of focus too much <laughs> on kind of all these theses and trying to feel like, oh, I was, you know, sitting on a mountaintop and I had this amazing vision of what the world should look like and I'm going to go find companies that match that. Sometimes when you know founders, you know, they're the most imper- important person by far in, in the ecosystem. When, when you find founders, you know, are going to execute and, and will crush them. Just, just invest and be happy to go along for the ride. So that's kind of the other extreme. And that's, you know, it's about 50% of what we do. And on that point too, then first-time founders versus repeat founders, how does that kind of go in terms of your, your views on that? I know people have kind of varying opinions. Yeah, we've we've tended to do more as we've kind of aged as a fund. We've done more and more repeat founders. I think that's more just we have more opportunity to do it. As I mentioned yeah. earlier, we have this kind of um, you know group of great founders we've worked with. So when they do come back, and 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 luckily that they you know they want to work with us. We're able to invest in them. You know, it's almost like in a perfect world, you'd you don't you'd always repeat you'd invest in repeat founders because they just have a lot more experience. You know, they can see around corners. 
Um, they're not making the kind of first-time founder mistakes. Unfortunately, there's just not enough of them, not, not enough of those opportunities to, to only do that. So you end up investing a lot of first-time founders. And, and clearly, if you look at kind of the biggest companies in the world, a lot of them are first-time founders. There's just a lot more of them. But, you know, I, I really enjoy working with both. They're, they're kind of a different um, type of relationship, you know, working with repeat founders, want to be there to support them, whatever they need, but they, they kind of know what they're doing. Uh, and, and, and they have much more of kind of a, a set vision around how they're going to build the company around hiring, you know, when do you hire a sales team? You know, when, when do you need to kind of bring in a VP of engineering in addition to a CTO, things like that, where the first time founder, you know, they can leverage a lot more of our experience going companies. So it's a, it's a little bit different interaction. You know, the mass majority of the invest investments we make are first-time founders, and that's just because there's a lot more of them and a lot of them doing great stuff. There, there's also it's not necessarily binary because you have there, you have a, a a founder that started a company and it's done well and sold that company, and then you have kind of a, a founder that's maybe come out of uh, you know a larger institution. But in the middle, you have folks that you know maybe they were the head of product for their startup, or yeah. you know maybe they they've been with a venture back a couple of venture back startups, which is like kind of in the middle because you see how startups work and you see how they grow and you see the mistakes that you made or the things that you did that work. And that, that's really uh, informative. So there's kind of a large bucket that's kind of in that gray area between first and, and, and second time founders, even if they're kind of technically a first time founder. And with founders as well, diving deeper into more of your knowledge with that, from being a founder yourself, having raised venture capital, and then obviously having seen so many deals at the seed stage over the last you know decade or so, I know you wrote a piece about how to raise a, a seed round. Would love to hear a few details about that process for people, for other founders listening, uh, what do they know about raising a seed round? Yeah, I got asked to present to a, a bunch of founders on kind of uh, how to raise money and kind of put together your deck. So I kind of tried to codify that. Um, you know, there, it's a lot of kind of little bits and pieces. You know, one kind of major part of our job is when our companies raise Series A's, we're heavily involved with that because, you know, most founders haven't raised the Series A and we at yep. least as investors are, you know, doing it a few times a year. So I think I have a good experience. So there's a, a bunch of kind of little tips and tricks, you know, uh, just to throw out a couple of them, yeah. um, whether it's seed or, or A, you know, and these sound obvious, but I find actually a lot of folks do it like early on, put together a kind of list of the investments you're going to target and usually put that in Google Doc or Notion or something that's kind of shareable. And then invite everyone you have around the table, whether you have, if you have, you know, current investors, share it with them. It, you know, if you have advisors or whoever, allow them to kind of put in folks that they're, uh, that they're close with, uh, you know, maybe add notes around, hey, I've worked with this person and, you know, X, Y, Z. Um, or, you know, it looks like you're already connected to this person, but I, I know them well, so happy to back channel. And, you know, the hardest part, especially raising a seed round is being connected with, with VCs. And, you know, I think if you ask most, most entrepreneurs that haven't raised money, that's where they, they really struggle. And it's hard, you know, it, uh, you know, in some cases you need to kind of do cold outreach. You know, if, if you don't have to do that, I, I would suggest not, but, you know, it's, it's necessary for some folks, especially if you're not kind of in entrepreneurial circles, but, Leverage who you do have around the table as much as possible. Have a central repository where everyone can put information and start that early so that, you know, when the time does come, you, you can have kind of that all mapped out. Um, so that's kind of one thing. And then one kind of pet, I'll throw out one pet peeve I have, especially <laughs> for seed stage decks is 
you know, when I receive a deck, someone says, hey, you should look at this company. The first thing I do is scroll to the team page because, you know, that's the most important. Get a feel. Who are these people? And then I go back and I look at what they're doing and I try and assess, are they a fit for that? You know, do they have that that founder market fit? You'd be surprised how many folks have like a buried team page. It's like at the very end, you got to like, you know, scroll through 30 slides to get to. <laughs> and then when you do get to it, there's lots, there's like no information. It's like three pictures and like a moniker, like the the marketing guy, guru, the, the product, you know, the techie. It's like, yeah. that really gives me no information other than right. maybe kind of what you're focused on. Like put information on your background, you know, have a link to your, your LinkedIn kind of describe, put a, I mean, don't, don't worry about making it this kind of clean, beautiful slide. It's more important. You communicate all the information so that I, as the investor or other investors can assess, okay, like this is a team that has like strong experience. And then when they go to see what you're doing, what market you're attacking, what problem you're solving, you say, okay, I see why that team kind of is a good fit for this good market. So it's very specific, but it's kind of a, a pet peeve I always try and tell people. Well, especially if you're looking at a slideshow and from a founder perspective, if you don't have the chance to present it necessarily, like totally, it's, yeah. it's different, right? So you got to keep that in mind as you're making these slideshows and decks and everything as well. It's like, if you're just going to, if it gets passed on to someone, you're not presenting it. So you can't give that context. So you do need to have enough on the slide to then have them be able to make informed decisions from there and see if it's even a fit for the first round, at least. A hundred percent. Yeah. And one of the things I'm really curious about with your experience, especially again, in the, in the last number of years you've been doing this, like how do you juggle the different relationships between founders and co-investors and potential partners? I know you say you have a little bit in the platform, you help with like uh, expert connections and everything. How do you manage that today, Hadley? I mean, it's uh, with great difficulty, you know, every, everyone's different. I'll, I'll give you an example. My partner Nahal is like, just he's extroverted. He's really good at building relationships and he's able to maintain you know, thousands of relationships. And it's really incredible to see. It's like no one I've ever met in my life. So I feel, feel very blessed to have uh, uh, gotten to work with him. Um, and, and he's able to do that kind of at scale. And he has his own kind of internal kind of CRM that he runs that that, uh, that helps him do that. I tend to be more, uh, I, I'm uh, more introverted. And, and my approach is to have kind of fewer relationships, but at least I, I think more deeper, you know, he actually is really good at having kind of deep relationships with a lot of people, but I'm able to kind of handle that better. So I tend to have a smaller number of co-investors that I kind of talk to a lot and kind of trade ideas with. I spend a lot of time with my founders, not, not that all doesn't. I, I tend to get a lot of opportunities from them, uh, do my best to kind of get, uh, you know, my thoughts out there on Twitter or whatnot as kind of what we call flypaper. Like these are areas I'm interested in. Here's like a, a thesis. I feel like there's an opportunity and that way people see it and may say, oh, I have a I have a friend who's really talented who's building something in that space. I'm, I'm going to reach out. Um, so everyone has their own approaches. Um, you know, we have an internal CRM that we use that tracks everything for from our email, and we're continuing to pull and, and kind of collect data around that. But honestly, you know, I think most things happen more at the human level with kind of strong relationships that, that you build over time and have trust. With those relationships as well, with your co-founders of this firm, you have, I mean, 25 plus or 25 years or so that you've been you've known each other but working with each other is obviously different but you've had a lot of experience doing that how do you kind of continue to maintain those relationships or anything at all with your co-founders that's been helpful yeah no this is a great question you know we were friends for 15 years or so before we started eniac and and now we've been working together you know 11 years investing 
Um, you know, and this I think is is kind of advice that I, I think is true also for co-founders of a, of a startup. You really have to put effort into those relationships. Um, so, for example, just being kind of friends and knowing each other from college is not enough because you also have to build that professional relationship. And we put a lot of effort into it. We've been working with an executive coach for I think seven years. We have uh, quarterly offsites where part of that is spent with that coach, and it's really accelerated kind of our uh, organization. So, you know, it's, it's one thing to kind of have a friend and kind of know them. It's another thing to understand kind of what their makeup is, whether it's like a Neogram or, or Myers-Briggs, you know, how they communicate, what their superpowers are. So we've, I think, gotten to a point where we're very clear on each other's strengths and weaknesses. We're able to leverage those strengths and kind of understand their weaknesses and not kind of, uh, you know, push something to them that, that, that it's not a strength for them. Um, so yeah, the high level is put effort into it. It's worth it. And, and then the second thing is, you know, bring in experts, you know, to the extent you can, that can kind of help you kind of take the next step, you know, ne- never be kind of satisfied with where your relationships are. And on that note as well, with obviously building those relationships, who's the best tennis player of the group, Hadley? Well, yeah, I, so I play, uh, when we can, uh, tennis with Mahal every Wednesday morning and. I generally beat him, but you know, you might have to have him on the show. You may have uh, other things to say about that. <laughs> I love that. There's always like some way of like, having a bond with people and being competitive. <laughs> it's so much fun, <laughs> uh, which is which is great. And also, like aside from work, I mean, how do you how do you kind of you know maintain your own mental health, your own sanity um, outside of work? It's obviously a huge important thing, especially when you're you're playing the long game and want to last a, a while. How do you do that yourself, Hadley? Yeah, totally. Um, you know, for me, uh, mental health, you know, it, it's a big, especially coming out of the pandemic, you know, it's such a big factor. It's, it's a place we've been investing as well. Uh, for me, uh, you know, I'm really in the meditation. So meditate every day. I find that really grounds me and kind of generally uh, brings me happiness. Uh, you might say 10% uh, happier as one of our portfolio companies. Um, uh, and then uh, getting exercise as much as possible, preferably every day. So I, I uh, you know, beat Nahal in tennis, I, I run, and then uh, do a, I've gotten really into yoga, especially in the pandemic via Mirror, which uh, I love, unfortunately, not we weren't investors, but, you know, in a world where you can't kind of go and be in, in public as much or around other people, that's been awesome. So yeah, exercise and meditation for me are kind of the, the big things, but, you know, everyone's a little different. Yeah. And one other thing outside of kind of the adventure world, I just actually put out a video on, you know, is the MBA worth it? I saw you got an MBA from Wharton. Why did you decide to get an MBA in the first place? Yeah. So that's a great question. I'm actually kind of skeptical of MBAs in general, but it was a good fit for me. So I, you know, I studied engineering before I went back to Wharton. I was uh, technical. I was a developer and then managing engineering teams. So really had no exposure to kind of the business aspects of, of, of an organization. So for me, I actually learned a ton. You know, I, I, I got kind of grounded in marketing, uh, in finance, uh, in management, uh, you know, focused on entrepreneurial management. So a lot of kind of uh, stuff I learned from, from uh, kind of how to build a business. So I find it helpful. What, what I think is not kind of as clear to me is the value of an MBA when you're coming from a business background. So you have a lot of folks that after undergrad, they go into finance or they go into, you know, they work at BCG or McKinsey for a couple of years. I don't think they're getting that much out of it, to be honest. I think a lot of what they learned on the job is a similar stuff as they're learning an MBA. So to me, it's not worth taking two years and going into debt to, to do that. 
Um, but I think if you're coming from kind of a background like mine, where everything that you learn at MBA is new, I, I found it worthwhile. Yeah, and from talking to like my, my friends at USC from the MBA, like yeah, to that exact point, people who had zero business background. I mean, it's just like drinking from a fire hose. It's so much you're getting that you never had really had access to previously. And obviously, there are online things. There's other ways to kind of acquire that knowledge in some ways. And the case I always make for the MBA is it's not for everyone. That's for sure. But also on the networking side of things, building that group of people in the city you're going to be in, and then potentially in an industry you want to be in, if you leverage it correctly, it can be super helpful. And that's something where, I mean, I've gotten a lot of podcast guests and everything through USC, both being at school and then also just using that brand to get access to people who are in that network, which is helpful as well. And a um, number of other ways as well with, with that. And I just have like two main final questions. One being any other advice for founders, obviously you've been a founder yourself and also been on the other side for the last decade as an investor, any other advice for founders as they're building their companies or raising money for their companies? Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, it's hard to have kind of a, a catch-all, but I'd say just in general, and I kind of feel it, this is nothing novel, but just in life in general and also kind of being a founder, you know, take, take risks, you know, um, you know, when I've taken risks in my life, you know, some of them have worked out, some of them haven't. But, you know, I, I, I'm in a position where I really love what I do. Uh, and I'm only in this position because I took big risks. I mean, starting a $1.6 million seed <laughs> fund when, when seed funds aren't even a thing was like a really stupid decision in a lot of ways. Like if you kind of mapped it out, but like it's worked out well for us. I mean, we feel very blessed to be able to work with people we do both in the organization and the founders. And none of that would have happened if we didn't kind of take a stupid risk. So, uh, you know, it, don't let people talk you out of, you know, leaving your job to start a company, even if it seems like it's not the, you know, not a good ROI or not the best career move. Just, just do it if your heart's in it. And, and then, um, and then I guess the second part of that is do, do something, start a company in something you're really excited about because it's a ton of work. It's not all glamorous. Um, you're going to go through a lot of shit storms. And if you're doing something you're really passionate about, uh, you're going to still have fun during that time. Um, but if it's something you just kind of think is a good idea, but you don't have passion, then, then it's not going to be nearly as fun. Yeah, that was something Vanessa Larco from NEA, I had her on the show recently. She echoed as well because she started a company initially just because her friends were like, we want to start a company. But they didn't really know what like they wanted to actually start and they didn't have anything super passionate about, but uh, didn't do as well as they would have liked. But that's something that echoed as well from other people in the show, like having that like fire behind you of like what you want to start and what industry you're in, so that that founder market fit. And then for on the and, uh, investment side of things, so we're going to eventually raise our, our next fund here at Vitalize. So for a, a seed stage fund, a company, you know, people raising a seed stage fund, anything you'd say to, to them? Um, you know, in my background, or, you know, in, in my past, kind of before we started ENIAC, I didn't spend time at venture funds and I didn't really leverage mentors. And that was kind of 100% on me. Um, uh, I, I'm not really sure why I made the decisions I did around that. I, I guess I just thought I was kind of wasting their time. And yet now that kind of we're further along, you know, I really enjoy spending time with founders of, of funds or just getting started. As I said at the beginning, I've made a ton of mistakes. So like a lot, a lot that I can kind of hopefully help them not make mistakes. So to the, the extent you can, you know, leverage mentors, even, you know, potentially spend some time at a more established firm for a period of time just to see how they do things. You don't necessarily need to copy everything, but just kind of understand this is why people do what they do. Uh, we made a ton of mistakes early on where 
we thought we were like hacking venture. And then a couple of years later, we're like, oh, that's why they do it this way. Um, so yeah, yeah. Try, try not to, if you can avoid making mistakes by kind of leveraging folks that have made those mistakes before, uh, it's worth doing it. And, you know, I, I'm always happy to be helpful, uh, whether it's to you, Justin, or others out there that are starting firms. Uh, um, I really enjoy it. Yeah, and I'll definitely keep that in mind as we're raising our second fund, um, which which is exciting to be a part of uh, at this venture firm. Being in, the, you know, just joined, and now we're already at that point in our kind of life cycle, uh, and talking to a number of investors. You know, recently, like I said, Vanessa Larco, NEA, Mario Nichols, just talked just talked to him recently. Having other um, other VCs coming up as well, which is good to get the different perspective on people's, you know, how they go about venture, how, how they've gone about, at least in their industry, the way they play. And we'll be focusing on, you know, kind of a smaller sector within that with future of work and future of learning. So even talking to people within those industries as, as we kind of move forward is, is pretty exciting for us. And Hadley, where can people go to learn more about your venture firm and connect with you as well? Sure. Um, yeah, my Twitter handle is easy. It's just at Hadley, uh, my first name. Uh, uh, so always trying. <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, my partner uh, reached out to Jack in the early days. So I'm very lucky to have a good handle. Uh, so that, that's pretty easy. And then um, my email is hadley at eniac.vc. So feel free to email me. I'm usually a little more responsive with DMs, uh, or quicker, I should say, with DMs than, than email. So yeah, feel free to reach out anytime. Happy to try and be helpful. Perfect. Hadley, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show today. Thanks for having me. Really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Just Go Grind. If you want to follow along on the socials for all things Just Go Grind and with me as well, you can find Just Go Grind on Instagram and Twitter at Just Go Grind. You can find me on Twitter at JustinGordon212. Find me on Instagram, JustinGordon8. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great day.